Chapter 5 Deansgate Scenes on a Sunday Night Narrower streets I had seldom been in, and more repulsive men and women I had never beheld than those who jostled us at corners and brushed up against us with the privilege of the vulgar. The rain began to fall slowly but steadily, and shining puddles in the ill-paved roadway gathered quickly as we passed along. Suddenly Mac touched my arm and dived down into what I thought an old cellar, for a wide arched passage gaped before us. I carefully followed, and after going down three or four steps, I was quite in darkness, with the exception of the faint glimmer from a dim street lamp that was reflected from the wet surface of the flags. "'Take your hat off,' said Mac, "'and mind the top.' It was fortunate he had spoken so promptly, for I was just raising my head, and I found I could not stand upright. Groping along with blind confidence, I followed one of the walls which was damp and slimy, and so we passed on for some twenty yards. Almost as suddenly as we had entered this miniature tunnel did we emerge, but it was by a series of steps which led into a black court, with the houses grouped in most irregular disorder. The passage was nothing but a subway between the dwellings facing the street, but why such an extraordinary means of communication should have been found necessary, I cannot surmise. It would afford ample means of escape for anyone pursued by strangers, and I am half inclined to believe it had often done good service in that particular direction. In the yard itself, flights of steps guarded by iron handrails led to some of the doors, and below were the cellars that had once served as dwellings for the poorest and most wretched. We looked into several kitchens, but only found women sitting with strange men of the collier type I have mentioned, singing and indulging in coarse jokes. Passing along a kind of wooden bridge, we traversed another dark entry, and were once more in the open street, though in quite a different direction to the thoroughfare from which we had started. Dolefield and Wilmot Street were now near at hand, and they were next looked up. Men and women were as usual thickly clustered together in the front rooms, and most of the doors were wide open, as if inviting the unwary to enter. Once, in the dark, I had got halfway upstairs before finding out that I should have turned to the left to have entered the proper room. I was soon recalled to a sense of my mistake by the appearance at the top of the stairs of a woman half undressed with a ragged petticoat over her head and a guttering tallow dip in her hand. She inquired, "'Where the are you going?' and I went, down the steps backwards as rapidly as I could. I slipped out into the street, where I found Mac waiting for me. He laughed inordinately when I told him what had happened, and said they always had the stairs opposite the street door for convenience. He added sententiously, You know, they can kick a man downstairs and straight out into the gutter without any trouble, and it's very useful sometimes. I had not the slightest doubt of this, for I had observed that the stairs faced directly to the street, but I made an inward vow never to go up any more of them, for the virago in full war paint had rather startled me. So closely built are these wretched dwellings, that on entering Brocky Rose Anne's in Wilmot Street, we could distinguish every word of a song that was being screeched out by a woman in the adjoining corner house in Dolefield. We turned round the corner to find the vocalist, and we had not long to search. In a miserable apartment two feet below the street level, and almost pitch dark, for the paraffin lamp had been so badly trimmed that the glass was jet black with smoke, we discovered this Deansgate nightingale. 
She was sitting on a rickety stool, with her toes almost under the grate, in spite of the good fire that was half scorching her. And as she turned round defiantly to us, it could be seen that she was too drunk to be amenable to the rules of ordinary conversation. Her man was standing by her, and an old woman, with a face wrinkled and black with age and dirt, was crouching on her knees to light her pipe with a glowing ember. The songstress had the remnants of some good luck still left her, but it was too plain she was of the wicked, and her language proved it. Her song was, singularly enough, a love ditty that I have often heard rendered by street singers, with far less power and effectiveness. She was almost crooning it, as the Irish would say, and as the words, and I was in my green grass grave, and green grass grew all over me, came softly forth, for the girl had a voice of fair compass. The old woman mumbled and nodded, and her pipe shook in her lips, as she looked admiringly at her companion. The room was almost devoid of furniture, and the dirty plaster walls, innocent of paint or paper, formed a fitting frame for the picture. The place was stifling, and the stench from the lamp oil and from other sources was sickening. We left them to their music, and stepped out once more into the rain. It was a dreary walk, and we were glad to take refuge in an entry to escape the drizzling downpour. We had only been standing beneath the sheltering arch a few minutes, when we heard a row in the yard, and we, of course, hastened up to see what was the cause of the disturbance. It was nothing, but Bradley's Court, Wood Street, had often seen a drunken woman behaving like a mad creature, and Spinks's gal was now only raving at the top of her voice, for the police had been round, and their presence had reminded her of poor Bill, who was, I think, doing a stretch. The door of the room in which she lived was open, and through the smoke that filled the place, we could see her gesticulating in the wildest fury. Two or three neighbours tried to calm her, but without avail, for she would not be appeased. On the low iron fender, a child of seven or eight years of age was sitting, but in such a state of dirt, blackened and begrimed with smoke and other impurities, that his features were scarcely distinguishable. He was a mere pygmy of a lad, and yet he remained quiet, and never uttered a cry while the woman was so noisily demonstrative. He seemed not the slightest alarmed, and gazed now into the fire, and then at the persons in the doorway with no interest at all expressed in his face. He had been used to this sort of thing, I supposed, from his earliest years, and took it as a matter of course. No doubt his training will have good effects in after life. After hearing sufficient vile expressions to last an ordinary being for the term of his natural life, we betook ourselves to the street again, but it was only an escape from Scylla to fall into Charybdis, for we soon perceived that a battle royal was being carried on between two women who were involved in a hopeless struggle to remove the hair from each other's heads. They were watched by an appreciative circle of friends, male and female, who now and again quarrelled among themselves to bear the combatants' company. The result was what might have been expected, the commencement of a free fight, but it was soon put a stop to by the appearance on the scene of a man who I could see at once had more power over these unruly mobs than they would like to confess. He was of average build, but broadly set, and he went for the crowd instantly, with a quiet determination that was in keeping with what followed. He had no stick or anything to protect himself, but he parted the women, thrust one among the crowd, and gripping the arm of the other, pushed her into one of the houses. Then, turning to the men who were still quarrelling, 
he sharply spoke to them by name and told them to be off. One who had been engaged in the fight called out menacingly, All right, you, Jerome. But before he could say more, he was seized by the collar, run barrow fashion down the street, shoved into his own residence and told to remain inside. To ensure compliance with his orders, this man of prompt and energetic action pulled the door smartly to and ordered the few stragglers to disperse. They tailed off in various directions without further disturbance, and the street was as quiet as before. The whole affair had transpired so rapidly that I could scarce believe my senses when I saw a crowd of apparently the lowest ruffians of Wood Street slinking off, cowed by a single man. This proves how well order can be preserved by a good detective officer who knows his work thoroughly and does it without fear or favour. There are several men of the kind in our local force, and their names are more powerful in the dangerous districts than the presence of any number of men in uniform. After this little scene, we continued our excursion, and we found many evidences that the elite of the district were spending Saturday night in the most approved English fashion. That is to say, they were recklessly getting rid of all their spare cash, and receiving in return various forms of drink. Song and dance were added to give piquancy to the amusement, for in one house the inevitable hurdy-gurdy was grinding forth a lively tune, while a man in shirt-sleeves danced a hornpipe with spirit and energy. To see the pleasure with which the limited audience watched his uncouth motions, one would have imagined he was best man in the district at a breakdown. But I have seen many a lad at a street corner doing a double shuffle to warm his clogged feet, who could have beaten him with ease. The songs were of a very diverse character, for in one place, a respectable house by the way, though in a disreputable neighbourhood, a strong well-built fellow was quavering out on the banks of the Nile, while mending a dilapidated waistcoat. He was a tailor, but his physique was that of a navvy, and it was strange to observe his huge hand plying the needle so dexterously. He was as bashful while singing as a girl, and as the chorus was taken up by five or six men, as powerful-looking as himself, he seemed wonderfully relieved to find his own voice drowned. He was loudly applauded at the finish, and was as pleased as the greatest tenor that ever responded to an encore. Very different in sentiment and character was another effusion, a verse of which is worth appending for its originality. He was howled forth in a shrill treble by a youth who might have been the hero of the song itself. As near as I can recollect, it ran thus. Oh, I'm a bloke that gets me living by taking things what isn't given, with me hand, with me fist, with me duke, with me mauler. I wish there was no bobbies. I do, I do. For the treadmill, it does make me ill, and I only steals my belly to fill, with my hand, with my fist, with my duke, with my mauler. Oh, downy on the blue uns. End of part five.